Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. So can we talk about Alec Baldwin? Always. Because, you know, when I heard the recording of him screaming at his teenage daughter, Mm -hmm. he sounded a lot like Donald Trump. Mm Mm-hmm. And now I got to say, like, the guy is more Trump than Trump. Check Ooh. out the sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> I would check out an Alex Baldwin sex tape. Yeah, uh, early not, Alec not, Baldwin. Yeah, early yeah, Alec yeah. Baldwin, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, like Kim Basinger era Alec Baldwin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I just say that uh, check out the sex tape is a line that we should use constantly about all sorts of people. Yeah. In all kinds of contexts. Right. Just, you know, <laughs> when, whenever you have nothing to say about somebody, but you just kind yeah, of like, want to... did you read that Charles Krauthammer column? Yeah, check out the, check sex, out the tape. sex tape. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Not tape. a sex tape, I would want to see, for the record. <laughs> Hard uh. pass. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Strange Bedfellows Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Check out my sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> See? It does work. <laughs> You're laughing too much. Sorry. It's very Clintonian of me. <laughs> so wait, if if this is the Strange Bedfellows Edition and we're checking out Shane's sex tape, doesn't that really mean that Casper mattresses should be a sponsor. A sponsor. I don't know what they're waiting for. I mean, they're obsessively engineered. Yeah. And you can send them back. If you don't like I don't them. I think they donate them. I don't think they like recycle. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. I think we should have a representative of Casper mattresses on to talk about what they do with all the mattresses that get sent oh, yeah. back. But Tinkering. not very many mattresses get sent back, then because everybody loves Casper Well, that mattresses. depends if they sponsor us or not. Because they're obsessively engineered, so why would you send it back? See, we practically have the script already. Yeah. yeah. Come on, Casper mattresses. Get on it. Don't you want to sponsor the Strange Bedfellows edition? Could it's be just perfect. for you. We're holding a place for you. Uh, we're here in the studio with our good friends, my good friends, your good friends, Ben Wittes, Mark Hoffman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi, Shane. Hey. Uh, Check out sex tape. (laughs) We are never going to get through this episode. (laughs) Everyone stop listening to go check out our sex tape. (laughs) Just wait till we get to the credits. Right. (laughs) Start thinking on that now. Uh, This week on the podcast, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump enter the home stretch of the presidential campaign. Hackers take down a key component of the internet in an unprecedented attack. And WikiLeaks makes some unexpected alliances, not with Casper mattresses, uh, plus object lessons. Um, we're going to start off by not talking about the debate. Or actually, Ben, you wanted to actually mention something else we're not going to talk about. Yeah, so there's a big big uh, issue that we're not going to talk about in, in this episode, and that's the uh, D.C. Circuit's and Bank decision in Al-Balul, which is, I believe, the fourth D.C. Circuit decision in the Al-Balul case. Uh, and... Um, it's a really important, really interesting, really complicated decision, and we're not going to talk about it at all today. And the reason is, is that we've devoted the entire Lawfare podcast to it this week. We just recorded it this morning with, uh, Bob Loeb of, of the Oric firm and Steve Vladek. And, uh, so it's a really great, uh, discussion. Uh, and if you're, if you're jonesing for Al Balul, uh, we've got you covered. 
Check out the sex tape. Check out the sex tape. Always. So the other thing we're not going to talk about uh, is the third debate. Uh, It just feels like too much punishment. It was so last week. Yeah, it was so last week. Uh, we you're the puppet. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, you're, you're the puppet. <laughs> it, feels, it seriously feels like a year ago. Yeah, you're the puppet. Feels like a year ago. I can't even remember. Oh wow. Um, but uh, we are going to take on a different question. And uh, tomorrow we're going to start. I'm going to start by throwing this to you. So, Hillary Clinton has obviously portrayed herself as the only sensible choice for commander in chief, and she has portrayed her opponent as somebody who is uh, uniquely dangerous uh, as as a candidate and potentially in that role. Um, as we enter in the home stretch where this has actually been such a huge feature of the campaign and obviously something we've talked a lot about here on the podcast as it pertains to national security, um, does that matter? Does that commander-in-chief argument actually at the end of the day matter when it comes to the vote? Right. So I th- I think it's an interesting question, number one, because traditionally the American public does not weight national security issues very heavily in their voting choices um, it's usually jobs, education, and the economy. Uh, and I don't, and I think that if you look at the public opinion polling for this year, this year is no different from any other. And yet, there's been this sort of theme throughout the campaign with Trump saying not only on domestic economic issues, but also on national security issues, the world is in chaos. Things are violent and disordered and horrible, and it's all gotten worse because of Obama and Clinton. And Clinton has consistently been making this argument that you can't trust this guy with the powers of a commander in chief. He doesn't have the knowledge. He doesn't have the experience. He doesn't have the judgment. He doesn't have the temperament. And this has been sort of a yin and yang throughout the campaign. What I think is interesting over the last few weeks is, number one, voters agree with Clinton on this kind of um, fairly strongly. So if you look at uh, Quinnipiac, which pulled on this issue in September, uh, Americans trust Clinton over Trump on national security by a margin of 57% to 39%. A majority believe she's more likely to make the right choice about sending U.S. troops overseas. Uh, and a majority trust her better on immigration than they trust Trump. So on all those kinds of key issues related to the way national security is played out in this campaign, she seems ahead. And yet, question how much these national security issues really matter when we look across these three debates. Even though we've talked a bit about ISIS and a bit about Syria, the national security policy has been a minor, minor feature in the campaign. So I just find it an interesting puzzle. Clinton has made this a strong part of her closing argument. And how much do we think it really matters to voters? Is she right to do that? Or is this somehow a proxy for something else? So I think that, uh, you know, the temperament issue is uh, of particular concern in the national security context because it tends to be where the president has the most unconstrained authority. So I think sort of the temperament argument and the national security argument are not different. I don't know how much any individual voter um, sort of that changes their vote. I I don't know how sort of um, whether even an individual person can can really articulate why they, you know, uh, 
uh, are supporting one candidate over the other, especially if they don't have um, developed policy opinions. Um, that said, I do think that there are um, all of these really uh, sort of significant examples of the way in which uh, temperament, uh, the temperament of various leaders has really dramatic consequences on national security. Um, so I spent yesterday in a, in a long conference on um, on uh, the law of the sea. Um, and one sort of theme was this idea that um, the Philippines had, had sort of for years and years um, pursued this very sort of uh, uh, carefully thought out strategy, both in terms of their alignment with the United States and in seeking arbitration against China, this sort of this, this really comprehensive, careful plan by which they were going to, you know, really secure their, their national security rights. And then they elected a crazy person. And the crazy person was like, oh, I don't care so much about that. Actually, I think we should be friends with China. And like this whole policy, um, you know, the, that has been 15 years in the making, uh, kind of went up in smoke, right? And it dramatically altered the long-term uh, sort of course. Uh, so I think that, that those are, um, there are more and more examples on the news to the extent voters read sort of news about, uh, you know, the, the world's uh, non-domestic news about sort of inter the international world. Um, uh, those examples of, of the places in which um, electing people who are not predictable um, turns out to have really significant consequences. Uh, if you're paying attention to that, I don't see how that can't be primarily what you base your vote on. So I, I, I think the historical evidence strongly backs Susan's uh, view of this. If you look at the presidential candidates uh, in the last 50 years who have not just lost, but have really gone down in flames. Uh, Goldwater, McGovern, uh, uh, Mondale, Dukakis, right? These are the ones who didn't just lose, they lost nearly everything. They are all people who the other side plausibly portrayed as either just weak, and therefore dangerous or crazy and therefore dangerous. And to win, to lose everything as, as these people did or almost everything, uh, you have to be not just on one side or the other of the ideological divide. You have to be portrayable as, remember, Dukakis got on that tank and everybody giggled, right? And that's, um, uh, and that's what uh, Hillary Clinton here is trying to do to Donald Trump. She's trying to turn him into somebody who is, you know, not just you don't want to vote for him because you disagree with him like uh, a, a Mitt Romney or a John McCain, but it's a profoundly dangerous act to contemplate voting him for him. Like in your guts, you know, he's nuts, which was the, the joking slogan about Goldwater. And I think that is, uh, the difference in a lot of campaigns between merely winning and really dusting the other person. Well, it's an interesting point because the history bears you out on this. And it suggests that maybe the Clinton campaign pegged that early on as an issue not only that they could use for their advantage to their advantage in you know what looked like a tight race some months ago but as something that they could use to pound this guy into the dirt and, and, in, and in some respects <clears throat> i mean to bring it back to your question about whether it matters for hillary clinton to be portraying herself as the, the more logical and sounder choice 
she almost didn't have to make that argument. She could, right? She could but say, he made it easy for her. He made it easy for her, as he did in so many things. And people have pointed out so many ways that she is a very, very weak, historically weak candidate. And were she running against anyone else, she might be facing, you know, a bit more, obviously more formidable, or, uh, uh, the possibility of losing, which it looks like now she's almost certain to win. Um, but, you know, to, to that point too, there's a sizable portion of his base who absolutely believe she's unfit as commander-in-chief, right, because of Benghazi, and who keep kind of coming back to these sort of touch points, logical or illogical as they may be, but this sort of the broader question of trust, of, of competency, all kind of gets wrapped up in this, but she hasn't really had to defend that, it seems to me, because of who she's running because against. he's she, so obviously less trustworthy. Yeah, so less trustworthy. And she might look, has she really been forced to confront it, she would have really faced some tough questions. What about Libya? Why did you advocate for this intervention? It's, it's very interesting that he never managed to really make Libya an issue, although he tried a couple times in the debates. I don't know if it was the moderators or the way he brought it up. He didn't manage to leverage it. Um, although, as you say, even beyond his base, which is convinced of a grand conspiracy, right. there's discomfort uh, in in the public on this question. But I also think that there was an interesting choice that the Clinton campaign made relatively early on before the convention, but definitely like by the time of the convention, which was once they secured the nomination, were they going to run, were they going to embrace that uh, centrist national security establishment, safe pair of hands argument, or were they going to, you know, go a little more on the progressive side you know, be part of the Obama bandwagon. We don't like war. We want to stay out of wars, which is what your typical Democratic candidate would do. And they chose to have Republican foreign policy people sign letters on her behalf, to have a four-star general come speak at the convention on her behalf, and really to play this stuff up in a way that I don't rem- – I mean, certainly in my adult lifetime, I haven't seen a Democratic candidate do that. Even John Kerry – you know, with his uh, with his awards, did not play it up to that extent. And in retrospect, that looks like a pretty smart choice. So I do think that um, sort of that conflict is going to be had one way or the other. So because of sort of the extraordinary circumstances of the election and her the unique characteristics of her opponents, um, of the election season was not the time to have that. Um, you already hear people talking about, you know, so what her sort of more hawkish, uh, you know, uh, foreign policy positions, um, uh, how Democrats and Republicans are going to sort of respond to that. Um, look, I, I think that goes to... Um, uh, some of the very, very deep tensions that are running in the Democratic Party right now. Um, you know, they're sort of they're pointing and laughing at um, uh, the implosion of the Republicans. Uh, I maybe would be a little bit cautious. Um, look, this fundamental question about um, what does it mean to be a progressive? What does it mean to care about people in the world? Um, what is the purpose of American power? Uh, can the world be better if we aren't willing to use force? I mean, I think these are questions that uh, progressives have become fractured on. Uh, there is there is sort of a um, an element of the left, sort of characterized by by Bernie Sanders, more kind of Jill Stein, right? This really sort of um, anti imperialist thing um, that is, uh, you know, to me is so callous as to be unrecognizable as sort of as as Democrats or as progressives. 
I think there's a lot of really deep stuff there, even sort of on, you know, not the left, but kind of the center to the left of the party, not to mention the divisions of, you know, the center to the right. Over the next four years, I think we have really serious policy fights over this stuff. So, but I, I don't think this tension on the left is new at all. I mean, there has always been a tension between the anti-interventionist left and the sort of uh, foreign policy establishment center it, left. Don't you think it's more visible in the mainstream, that leftist approach? Like you have Chris Murphy in the Senate now, you know, saying, well, we shouldn't be selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. The Democratic establishment has been firmly, you know, centrist up well, until recent years. I mean, be careful, right? I mean, the the democratic establishment in the post uh in the post post vietnam era the 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 clinton and later era but clinton had to push against the sort of anti-interventionist left in you know at that at that time that was sort of the new democratic foreign policy right was accused of sort of being warmed over reaganism and um, so I don't think this tension is new in the Democratic coalition. What it strikes me as new in the Republican coalition that you could have the anti-interventionist or sometimes anti-interventionist, anti-trade, uh, you know, sort of hardcore paleocon like Trump take cool. over the yeah, watch the sex tape, by the way. Um, <laughs> check out this. Um, the, the, the hardcore, no pun intended, uh, paleocon Trump kind of take over, uh, the party. That's a real departure from the modern history of the Republican Party. Although Susan might be right that given that, you know, what we're likely to have is a Democrat in the Oval Office, the argument on the left is the one that's likely to be more visible in the next year. Agreed. I think it also speaks to the need for two functioning parties that pull <laughs> each other in one direction or the other. Oh, that's so old-fashioned. You your checks and balances. Uh, you're such a traditionalist, Susan, wanting you know. two parties. All right, Susan, so our next segment. If you have a baby monitor, a thermostat connected to the Internet, a washer-dryer connected to the Internet, which I almost bought but did not, as we recall. Thank you very much. You broke the Internet last yeah, week. Yeah, you guys suck, all no, you people who okay. have that stuff. You know what? It's not the baby monitor's fault. It is the fault of the person who bought the baby monitor and never changed the default settings right? on the baby this monitor. True. Right? So, this is yeah. like basic hygiene. Basic hygiene, which apparently we did not all follow because hackers last week, still unidentified, used a – just massive amalgamated army of these internet connected devices, this internet <laughs> of things. I just got this image of little baby monitors marching in formation yes. down Fifth Avenue. Essentially <laughs> in, in the series of tubes. That's what happened, man. Uh, so in case you missed this, obviously last week a, a, uh, a criminal botnet, uh, was used to take down a key component of uh, the infrastructure that routes traffic on the internet, which is why if you had trouble getting on Twitter or the New York Times or some of your favorite websites on Friday or accessing some of your social media, that was why. This caused a problem on Lawfare because we couldn't access our base camp. Quinta and I were both shut out of base camp because of the baby monitor attacks. Yeah. Um, so not, not to be too facetious about this, one of the things that was really troubling 
to a lot of experts and that I found notable about this was for a long time, people have been warning about the so-called Internet of Things and that these devices, which are essentially just computers, right? They're just devices, electronic devices connected to the Internet and can be hijacked and used to flood websites or core infrastructure or companies that are very important to the functioning of the Internet with traffic and to bring them down. I mean, this was really sort of on a scale of the speed and the the mass of the attack was unlike anything that we've seen before uh, not surprising since it was able to harness the collective power of all these devices. Um, it looks like, according to uh, Jim Clapper, the intelligence director, that it was not a state actor. So this may not be the same in the same continuum or the same narrative. It was the uh, babies. It was the babies <laughs> that did it. <laughs> you know, most of their action is not covert. It it's was, pretty overt. It was the, the anti-surveillance <laughs> babies who really don't like the, um, the unprecedented <laughs> surveillance that they've been subject they to. finally have revolted. They will have their revenge. Exactly. They, they are legion. And it will be smelly. That's right. They you will not post their pictures to Twitter. Today. They are legion. They are... Uh, they are... Smelly. Uh, smelly. I forget the rest. And we do not, and they do not forget. They do not forget. <laughs> Expect them. Um, but this, this really was, I mean, this also, I think, pointed out, you know, a, a, which has been, we've known this for a long time, that there obviously are key components of the internet that we all depend on, that if they go down, pieces of the internet go down. And it was really a, a, I thought, just an object lesson in the fragility and the interconnectedness of the internet. Uh, and, and frankly, the, the possibility, the real possibility that exists for people to harness uh, these botnets and these apparatuses to do real damage. And, you know, one of us with the right amount of money could presumably go out and hire the botnet that is controlled out there to do this. And we still don't know who did it. Um, but I, mean, I would be curious to sort of get you all's thoughts on this. I, to me, this was this was a really big deal. And this, this kind of shook me a little bit, too, uh, because it arrived at this moment where we're already – highly attuned to the threat from hackers to meddle in our election system. And this was another example of ways that people can, in fact, disrupt your daily life. So I agree. I mean, I, I think this this was a big deal. Um, it's also uh, it's just a warning, right, of, of what could happen. Um, so this is, uh, you know, as Shane said, um, you know, sort of security experts have been warning about this IoT issue forever. Um, and it sort of has manifest in this, um, why would anyone want to hack my toaster, right? It doesn't matter um, sort of thing. And, and I think that causes, and there are really two problems. One is um, uh, individuals not updating the default passwords. Right? So it doesn't matter how secure the software is. If you keep it on the default password, that's a vulnerability. So sort of individual responsibility. Um, then there's also this separate question, which was also used in the attacks, of, um, of uh, vulnerabilities that are not related to, um, to default passwords um, uh, in devices that cannot be remotely updated. Right. So um, the only way to patch that vulnerability is to have a physical recall, have everyone send their refrigerators and their cameras and their raping monitors back. Um, uh, obviously, that's... Um, not a scalable solution. Um, so there's, there, there's sort of there's a big um, personal piece and a big uh, manufacturer piece, um, and I think it sort of it. Uh, it, it does come in a moment in which um, there's sort of there's heightened attention about our level of reliance and thus our level of vulnerability. 
Um, I, I think the other thing that's sort of, you know, whenever we talk about, you know, the backbone or critical parts of the in, uh, the Internet, um, there are parts in which, um, you know, the Internet is highly fragmented. Um, so we've talked about sort of the decentralization as a security feature. Um, uh, this is an area in which previously centralization has been a security feature, right? So putting it in, um, you know, these these uh, these DNS, uh, you know, they're, they're very robustly protected. Um, uh, they're not administered by amateurs, right? This is, um, you know, there is an area in which um, centralizing really important things is something that uh, we want to see as, uh, uh, you know, an important feature of security. It leaves those things vulnerable. Um, And what this sort of DDoS is, is it's just a quantum leap in terms of the order of magnitude. Um, My real sort of um, question is the response uh, at this point, right? So um, there's two paths. They aren't uh, mutually exclusive, but I sort of, I, it'd be interesting to see where the government goes. Um, one is this personal responsibility, regulate the manufacturers kind of um, sort of private sector approach. Uh, the other is the law enforcement question. Um, so uh, the question of the FBI being able to hack back, right? So um, essentially, uh, whenever the, your, if your phone is being used to DDoS or your baby monitor, um, the FBI gets to hack you and and destroy it, basically. Um, All of a sudden, there are lots of voices calling for the FBI to be allowed to hack back if this is sort of going to be the future. Um, I'd be interesting to see what... where the government goes in sort of which path they view as their strongest sort of um, mechanism here. I think there's another quantum element here, not quantum in the technical sense, but quantum in the numerical sense, Um, which is that, you know, it used to be that every device that every connected to the Internet device that you had added a huge amount of functionality to your life. So think about your first computer that you connected to the Internet. It gave you email. It gave you the ability to go to websites, right? You're the second machine, which was probably your phone at some level, uh, allowed you to make all of that mobile, right? But now we're getting to the point where the marginal functionality value of each additional connected device is really, really small. It's the ability to monitor your thermostat from work, right? It's the ability to turn, you know, to have your oven turn on to the right temperature so that it's preheated when you get home. Uh, it's the ability to control your washer dryer. And, um, and so once you're adding devices that add that little functionality to your life, the number of devices that you're adding becomes enormous very quickly. And the number of op, and, and the, because people don't assume that the washer dryer has a lot of security needs, uh, the desire, you know, the, the, the amount of time people spend securing uh, washer dryer software is not very great. And so you have this amazing proliferation of very badly protected devices that don't update regularly. And that's a really, really dangerous thing from a DDoS point of view. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's important when we talk about what's the appropriate government response is to pay attention to the demand here. Because Ben is right that each additional consumer product, you know, that that is connected to the internet doesn't add that much to your life. But the expectation amongst consumers who buy this stuff is that 
everything they everything they do is on the internet now and so they they want everything to be connected all the time that's the demand and so that's why this consumer product sector has tried to jump ahead with internet-based functionality without thinking about security because the demand is strong and that's why people are scooping up these baby monitors and nest thermostats and everything without thinking about security. And so if there's a role for the government here, I don't know that it's necessarily regulation, but I do I do think there's a sense of civic responsibility, both for the consumer products companies to say like, hey, guys, if you're going to be part of the Internet world, you have to be security conscious like other parts of the Internet world. And but I also think there's a civic responsibility slash civic education component for consumers, for citizens to say, if you want everything in your house to be wired in this awesome way, then you have to make sure just like you have to make sure that your chimney isn't blowing smoke into your neighbor's air conditioner. You have to make sure that your baby monitor is not giving hackers access to your to your city's you know, water supply. And and so, you know, that seems to me more of an education role or a convening role for government than a kind of top down. We we must tell you what to do role. But there's but there's a problem with that analogy and it's not a moral or ethical problem. It's a it's an incentives problem. So when you say if you're going to you know, if you're going to have doors to your house, you need to put a good lock on them. Right. The um, the the costs of not doing it are borne by the user right but but in the case of the internet of things one set of potential costs that your thermostat can get hacked and that somebody can remotely control the temperature in your house uh that's borne by you but that may not seem like the craziest or worst threat in the world but the threat that this reveals which is that your computer systems can be weaponized against some third party is is an area where the individual user doesn't bear the security costs of of the problems that they're contributing to and so that's you I mean the analogy that you draw your um smoke from your chimney being blown into your neighbor's house, your neighbor is going to come over and say, hey, your chimney is causing a problem. Can you do something about this? But here, no one's going to come to you and say, you know, Tamara Wittes, your thermostat is causing me a problem. But isn't that what the government can do rather than hacking back? Although I suppose if it's dire circumstances, hacking back could be appropriate. But can't the FBI, you know, or the the federal government more broadly put out advisories saying this set of products is insecure people who bought these products the same way it does with you know cribs where the slats yeah. are Consumer too product far apart. Commission. so like exactly. i think i mean i think sort of the um, the realistic response to that is that there's only you know in the case of a market failure there's sort of there's only four ways you can actually change people's behaviors sort of apart from uh like i don't know the the hugs and rainbows right where everyone uh, corporate america just decides to do the right thing right you uh <laughs> Tax, subsidize, sue, and uh, and regulate. So I, I do think that that's because of the externalities Ben's talking about. That sort of um, 
uh, it's more likely we're going to have to go there. And I do think this point, right, it's it's not like a lock on your door. It's like being vaccinated, right? It's this broader responsibility. Mm. Clearly, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of different mechanisms we have to use. One in, in the vaccination context. Um, one is sort of the that that education stuff. Another is mandating that you have to be vaccinated in order to, uh, you know, go to public school, right? There's, there's lots of different mechanisms the government uses to try and force that behavior. I do think that one thing that'll be interesting is how exactly this threat is going to manifest itself. Um, so for a long time, we've known about, you know, networked medical devices and, oh, people are going to kill other people. So that really hasn't happened. Um, now, Although we now know it can, right? <laughs> right. Um, but but I think it's, it was plausible for a long time and, and still and hasn't occurred. And even, even now with proof of concept hasn't occurred. Um, there are sort of two um, uh, marquee DDoSs that have occurred in the past sort of two-week period. Uh, one is this sort of uh, large-scale chaos. Uh, that we saw on Friday, right? Taking down big parts of the internet. You don't really know who it's going to affect. Um, the other one that occurred about 10 days before um, that I think is as significant um, is, attack, is an attack against Brian Krebs um, that used this actually, this, it was the first manifestation of right. this uh, particular malware. Um, and it was used to take his site offline because Krebs does um, really, really consequential security research that actually lands lots of people in jail. Um, so Krebs wrote a piece about this. He called it the democratization of censorship, right? The notion that anybody, because this code is now open source online, anybody can get it, um, that almost anybody might have the ability to silence anybody else on the internet. Um, or, uh, you know, it might be pretty hard to silence the New York Times, but, you know, any random sort of blog, um, you know, is now susceptible to somebody sort of taking them offline. Whether or not it, it, it gets uh, the manifestation of the threat becomes chaos actors like we saw on Friday or, or maybe nation state or whatever it is, uh, or this sort of more particularized threat. I also is gonna, I think it's going to change the way people view this question of the risks, personal responsibility. Um, uh, and I just I think at this point, we're just kind of guessing what that's going to look like. Well, all I can say is that if anyone tries to censor rational security off the Internet, we will find you. We will hack you back. Yeah. We will and, send baby monitors to your house. And we have the sex tape. And I know a lot of people at <laughs> the NSA. So. <laughs> you too. You're the one we should be afraid of. Let's <laughs> um, so move on to our third segment. When you're WikiLeaks and you want to make some strange bedfellows, you call Casper Mattress. You do call Casper Mattress. Or Sean Hannity. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have to call Sean Hannity because Sean Hannity comes looking for you. Comes looking for you. Uh, ben, WikiLeaks is just defying all sorts of expectations and uh, making some interesting alliances, uh, which you chimed in on this week as well. Tell us about it. Yeah. So um, first of all, I think this event is entirely unsurprising. I just want to say that off the bat. I don't want to sound like I'm shocked by this. Um, but one of the things that that has happened over the last uh, few months is that WikiLeaks – has uh, which was thought of as a sort of darling of the left, the sort of anarchist uh, crypto anarchist left, um, uh, has become a creature of the far right. In in uh, and that's actually less about a change in WikiLeaks than it is about a change in uh, who admires uh, what they're doing and what happened. Uh, so. 
one of the la one of the things that's happened in the last few months is that it is that the relationship between WikiLeaks and Russian intelligence, which had been uh, rumored for a long time and had been assumed for a long time, uh, has become very open, uh, and it became open because. The U.S. intelligence community publicly attributed the hacks of the materials that WikiLeaks has been busily publishing to Russian intelligence. And that does suggest that somehow there was a transmission of information from Russian intelligence to WikiLeaks, which then turned around and published it. The only people who seem truly excited about this cache of information is the far Trumpist right. Um, uh, there's certainly some news in there. There's some information that's very unpleasant for uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign. But this isn't an area where that is going to profoundly upend the Clinton campaign. It is an area that gives a lot of talking points to the Trump people. And so a bunch of them have come to be uh, gone from all but calling for Julian Assange's assassination a few years ago, as in the case of, of, of Sean Hannity, uh, to uh, publicly celebrating WikiLeaks. And last week, I, I, I understand he had Assange on his show. I actually have never, I haven't watched Hannity's show, so I, I, I don't really know what was on television. But he tweeted something that frankly sounded like it had come from anonymous or uh, you know, he tweeted, it had the hashtag free Julian Assange. Uh, and, um, I was, I, I wouldn't say really surprised by it because nothing that this community does surprises me, but I was, uh, you know, a little taken aback. And so I tweeted at him that I, um, thought, you know, he should be aware that he was cheering an ongoing intelligence operation against his country and that, you know, that that warrants questioning somebody's patriotism over. And I uh, asked him if he would have me on his show to discuss. And rather to my surprise, uh, you know, thousands of people started retweeting this and responding to it. Um, and, you know, I was... Um, I, I do think if you look at the coalition of people who are enthusiastic about WikiLeaks today, it's very different from the coalition that was enthusiastic about them a few couple years ago. It's not the it's not the Snowden pro-transparency left anymore. It's the crazy populist hard right, and their common enemy seems to be centrist, establishmentarian, and liberal uh, politicians and, and forces. And I think that is a really interesting change in the sort of demographics of WikiLeaks support. And as you pointed out when you first started talking about this, it's, it's not terribly surprising. We can, I mean, in, in this election, in fact, has also shown, I mean, the, the extremes on either wing of the political spectrum, and we should probably start thinking about politics in this country more as a matrix and less of a spectrum. But it makes perfect sense that, you know, a, an organization like WikiLeaks that is all about, you know, revealing what's really going on and, and frankly plays into, you know, a sense of a, a bit of a conspiratorial mindset that does exist on the left and the right towards powerful institutions um, that tend to be centrist because that's generally how they survive and get by. Um, but I'm with you. I'm fascinated by this evolution and it, it, it's, it's going to show how WikiLeaks can be and Julian Assange can be a very flexible player and flexible tool 
in politics. And he decides when this information gets released, presumably, unless he's made commitments to the people giving it to him of when it will be released, um, and has shown that he's very effective at helping to shape a debate and to marshal people to his side. From his perspective, this is great, right? He realizes now he has an entirely new, quote-unquote, uh, a group of people who will embrace what he's putting out there uh, and just seems to give him even more influence than he already had. So I actually think the opposite is true. I think this is sort of the beginning of the end um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it shouldn't be surprising surprising to anybody um, that sort of this is where Assange uh, arrived at. Um, uh, sort of centrists or, or even just people across the ideological spectrum had any access to sort of intelligence material um, for a long time warned that there were major ties to deeply anti-Semitic organizations, um, that there were major ties to the Russian government, um, that this guy and this thing was just, uh, uh, was not, there was not pure motivations here. It was, there was really, there was something incredibly problematic going on um, that was ignored. I think sort of the beginning of the souring on Assange really was kind of the anti-Semitic tweets that um, that came kind of midway through the campaign. The reason why I think you're wrong, and that this is that this is the herald of the diminishing in, um, uh, sort of uh, influence, is because um, uh, WikiLeaks has thrived thus far because it was a credible platform, right? It was a way, the reason the Russians are using it is because it was a good way to get information out with kind of no questions asked about where it came from, right? It, it laundered it out and then, uh, you know, people could squabble over the source, but, but WikiLeaks wasn't the story. Like the, the, the materials were the story. Um, now I think that, uh, this is the last gasp, right? Um, it's, it's become incredibly clear that this this is not a neutral platform. It's not a credible platform. So sure, he can speak to far-wing extremists, you know, till the cows come home. Uh, my prediction is that what will end up happening is these max leaks will continue, um, but that we're going to start seeing uh, different platforms emerge. So either another WikiLeaks, something that is uh, a credible transparency mechanism that can uh, build support, and then you know who knows if they'll eventually burn it, or that we're going to start seeing people. Um, freelancing, right? The sort of the ability to disseminate materials, the way different information sort of goes viral. I think we might see more freelancing in this space um, where there's no need to have sort of a, any kind of platform at all. You just stick it up on Medium or, or wherever. You know, I, I think that's a really provocative and interesting thesis. And I guess what I would say is part of the evolution of WikiLeaks role in at least American politics and, and public discourse and the shift that Susan's describing is that WikiLeaks emerged when there was this big kind of romantic embrace of citizen journalism and bottom-up movements, you know, empowered by the internet. And WikiLeaks was seen as part of that trend. And what's changed is that the more we see the way this organization operates, the clearer it becomes that it is not a bunch of empowered individuals. It is, in fact, a top-down, directed thing and directed by a guy who's really you know, unpalatable and ugly and has an agenda and is in you know, and connected to and influenced by others with agendas. So it it's actually very much not that romantic uh, citizen empowering thing and the way in which WikiLeaks has played its role, the recklessness with which it's released information without any redactions, without any concern for the safety of individuals, um, has also, I think, created a bit of a backlash and therefore a rethinking 
you know, may be beginning about the value or lack thereof of these kinds of thoughtless throwings out of, of information into the world. And, um, and so if there are new WikiLeaks type organizations, I would hope that there would be a demand for them to be a little more like journalism, you know, and WikiLeaks claimed to be journalism, but it's very clear it's not journalism. Um, you know, that, that, that maybe we'll see organizations of investigative journalists uh, that get information in the way that journalists do or get it in the way that WikiLeaks has done, but use it in a way that is more journalistic, that's analyzed, that's contextualized, and that's sifted. That's what I would hope for. But I guess the other thing I have to, I, I'm really kind of curious about is, given that we've seen WikiLeaks um, engage in this kind of part of this intervention into American electoral politics, and given that we've seen the federal government finally come out and name the Russians as the uh, the power behind the hacks of the DNC and the DCCC, at what point are we going to see the federal government come out and name WikiLeaks as something other than an independent citizen-powered, you know, NGO? When are we going to see it named as a foreign agent? So I think um, I, I think the evidence is I would be shocked if the if the U.S. government ever sort of made that case, um, uh, just because I think the evidence is too complex to sort of present. Right? There's it's not technical. It's sort of it's this it's this wide body, um, uh, although it, it's certainly relevant. Um, I, I do think sort of one uh, the hope of sort of journalists being um, uh, either other platforms adopting a journalist model or even just it sort of it filtering back to journalists. Um, uh, uh, Thomas Ridd wrote this really great comprehensive piece in, um, I think it was in Wired, maybe Esquire. It was in Esquire, yeah. uh, sort of about, you know, the, uh, the sort of the, the Russian plan to hack the election, right? It really sort of good. Um, and one thing that I thought was a, a really important observation that he made, um, was some of the direct leaks that, uh, Guccifer, right? This sort of front for Russian intelligence, um, uh, his, the direct contact with journalists, right? And, and he describes a situation in which there is a group of journalists and any names them at Politico, at The Intercept, um, that are so hungry for scoops um, that they were happy to accept information and report it kind of without giving without without sort of giving too much thought to where exactly it came from uh, as we as we sort of look at um, traditional media organizations losing power and lots and lots of different actors coming into the space right the quasi citizen journalists the online journalism right um, uh, there's more competition for for sort of that uh, knockout scoop, I, I wouldn't be surprised if sort of uh, some of the traditional ways journalists, and I'm, I'm staring at Shane right now, uh, thought about leaked information didn't change. You know, and we've talked a little bit about this before, too. <clears throat> my, my own thoughts are starting to think, just starting to transform a bit about this as well, because we do have to think about the role that we're playing always when people give us leaks, whether it's somebody in the government who has an agenda or an anonymous source outside the government. And this is, I suppose, no different in that respect. Um, and I do think it's causing a bit more soul searching is the wrong word because we're not going to stop using leaked material as journalists. Uh, but thinking more carefully about the motivations of the person giving it to you. And the Clinton campaign leaned very hard on this from the beginning saying to, you know, in response to a lot of these journalists who were talking about, 
you know, it's irresponsible for you not to at least acknowledge in your stories that you are receiving information that is the product of a state-sponsored espionage campaign. And we all, we all know what your source is in that respect. But, in, and going back to the question too about when, you know, that Tamara asked about when the government is going to come out and sort of name it as a foreign agent. We did some reporting on this to the Daily Beast and it found kind of surprisingly a fairly mixed bag of opinions among the, you know, the unscientific sample of people we talked to in the national security community. It's not really that they see WikiLeaks as a journalistic organization. It's not that they don't see it as one. Um, but what this incident, I think, has clearly demonstrated is it, it can be, you know, a tool for agitprop, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an instrument in many respects and apparently a quite willing one uh, with an agenda of its own, too. That, I think, had, had, had this had more of an impact potentially in even changing the outcome of the election, I wonder if officials would have thought differently about it. It seems like these leaks really haven't changed the direction of the polls and that people have sort of made up their minds broadly about these candidates. But, um, you know, there, there could be more damaging leaks coming in the next couple of weeks. We don't know. But, but I do wonder if it had, had really had a, a seismic effect or directional effect on the uh, outcome of the elections, if people might feel differently. Sean Hannity and WikiLeaks. Check out the sex tape. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a good one. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you want to show your object? Because it's actually germane. Yeah, so my object is uh, an email I received from uh, General Mike Hayden, who was, uh, of course, the uh, director of the CIA and the NSA. When this uh, exchange with Sean Hannity took place, I emailed um, General Hayden just to give him a heads up that the uh, exchange had happened and to ask him if he had any thoughts on, you know, conservative talk show hosts who've sort of suddenly discovered in the context of this particular presidential campaign their inner Snowdenista. And it turns out that he did have thoughts on the subject and he wrote me the following letter, which I tweeted uh, and which I will uh, uh, relate the text of now. He wrote, Ben, Many thanks for the heads up. Fox News has almost entirely jumped the shark. They have given up any semblance of conservatism and focused on an almost visceral hatred of all things Clinton and Obama. There are a few points of light and Chris Wallace, Brett Baer, and Megyn Kelly. Hannity has entered the pantheon of a true propagandist, and his behavior reminds me of a conversation I had with a political officer in the mid-1980s when I was the heir attaché to Bulgaria. I asked this officer what truth was to him. He responded without hesitation, truth is what serves the party. And there you have it. Mike H. Oof. Truth is what serves the party. Yeah. So not, I, not the bedfellows you want to be. Right. So I just want to, I mean, just to lay the matter bare, the former... Uh, George W. Bush, CIA and NSA director, compared a Fox News talk show host to a Bulgarian communist apparatchik. Nice. Um, in strange days. It's We live in interesting times. Yes. <laughs> you got your wish. Uh, I'm going to share my object now, uh, which is actually, uh, it is another podcast, but really at root, it is a set of tapes. Uh, the journalist uh, Michael D'Antonio, uh, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and wrote a bio and a biographer of Donald Trump, 
has these hours of taped interviews that he did with Trump. I believe there were roughly about half a dozen interviews uh, that Trump agreed to conduct. Um, actually, quite willingly, he was appeared to be quite excited about the project to help uh, this reporter compile his biography. Uh, and he was so stunned by what he heard, this biographer, by what he heard in the tapes and then what Trump sort of became and exemplified on the campaign trail that he actually shared the tapes with the Clinton campaign first, thinking that they might be able to find, I guess, some you know things for opposition research or ways to push Trump's buttons because he was clearly disturbed by a lot of what he heard in the tapes. But now he shared them with the New York Times, and they've put them on their run-up podcast, which is a really good podcast if you don't listen to it. Um, it's a two-parter, and it is absolutely fascinating. It's one of the more illuminating and persuasive uh, uh, explications of Donald Trump that I've heard. And it's very much in his own words, which is the, the great thing about it. There are these long passages where you hear the question that the reporter asks. And it's clearly not a terribly confrontational setting, but it's a hugely illuminating one where Trump really kind of goes deep for Trump uh, about his childhood, his upbringing, uh, his brother, um, is sort of what it is that he's after in life. And the upshot Man, of it is... I, is I don't know if I want to go deep mm. on Trump. Yeah, but it's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's not actually that deep, which is the sort of amazing <laughs> The takeaway is that he really sort of comes away, D'Antonio does, thinking that Donald Trump is a man who, he put it in his own words, I think if you put a gun to his head, he couldn't tell you what he really wants in his life. And I just found this such a stunning revelation that wow. essentially what he's saying is that this is a, if I'll use a paradoxical phrase here, a deeply shallow individual yeah. uh, who really um, perhaps doesn't even know exactly why he's running for president, D'Antonio theorizes, but just that he thinks this is the next chapter in what he's supposed to do in living this very public life where he is, craves publicity, thrives on seeing his name in print, and thinks this is exactly what I'm now supposed to do in my next iteration of the billionaire businessman who lives this very public life. I should run for president. Wow. Um, Can't he to know just if he's make right. a movie about himself and spare the rest of us the I, agony? I have said from the beginning that if he was really smart, he's had a reality film crew following him the entire time and will make like the greatest political documentary oh ever seen. Oh, my God, Shane. <laughs> you know? What if you're right? You know, they might even give it the Oscar. I would watch that movie. I would, I would line up to watch that movie. No, we've been watching that movie for the last year and a half. But I've had enough. Yeah, actually, <laughs> that good now that you think about it. Anyway, uh, check out the podcast is great, but also and the sex the Trump tape. tapes. <laughs> the Trump, the Trump. These are not sex tapes, unfortunately, <laughs> or maybe fortunately. Uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. <clears throat> Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find the archive to our past episodes at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Please check us out and follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And when you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please leave a rating and a review. That really helps us out. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The podcast is edited and produced by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Julian Assange and the Leaky Sex Tapes. Excellent. <laughs> nasty. Nice one. Yuck. Such, a, Such nasty a nasty man. man. <laughs> I am. It's Mr. Harris if you're nasty. <laughs> of course, our music was performed by Sophia Yan, tapeless. Entirely tapeless. Entirely tapeless and guiltless. Uh, thank you, as always, to Sophia. On behalf of my friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Nasty. We'll see you next week. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 